Well, my name is Nathan. Again, uh, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Um, I don't know if you remember this, because uh, I know a lot's happened in the last 12 months. But you all remember that we won the Super Bowl last year? You guys remember that? A lot of, a lot of red uh, out uh, here today. Uh, actually, uh, Reed, is that? No, okay. Um, it was quite, a, quite an event, right? And now we're about to possibly do it again. And man, did this city party. Think back 12 months ago. Think back to that, that incredible week, right? The, the parades and everything shut down, like businesses closed, schools closed, like the entire city, it seemed, was there. And there were speeches and politicians and, and celebrities. I mean, Kansas City was riding high, right? We had heroes to celebrate. And, and even, like, even if you didn't go... And frankly, even if you don't really care about football, like everybody in Kansas City was smiling just a little bit more last week, weren't we? Or last year at this time, weren't we? Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. Like that's, that's what you do. Like you, you celebrate big events. And so here's Jesus's big parade. The story we just heard, it's not Palm Sunday, by the way. I know it, it feels like that hearing that text for some of you, if you've been a part of church any length of time and seeing that that's not yet, okay? We're not there yet, but this is where we are in the story as we go, as we go through Luke. And this is, this is his, this is a big parade. But instead of a party bus, he comes in riding a donkey. Like instead of high fives, he weeps over the city. And instead of Exciting speeches at Union Station, he enters into a dysfunctional temple. Is this the king we want? Because this, this is his big moment. Like everything in the gospel has been, has been building to this moment. He is entering into Jerusalem. This is the start of his final week. So he's, he's preached the sermons. He's done the miracles. He's healed the sick. He's raised the dead. He has proven himself to be king of the universe but there's no celebration, not really. No speeches by important people, no military escort, just Jesus in his soon-to-be very disillusioned disciples. This is the start of his victory parade. This is the beginning of his coronation. And it is pathetic. Is this the king we want. Why does Jesus do this? I mean, if you've been with us in, in Luke, right, you know, like, Jesus does everything on purpose. Nothing is happening to him by accident. So why this? I think it's because Jesus wants us to see there has never been a king like this king. And there has never been a kingdom like his like, he's giving us this, this contrast, right? He's forcing us to, to choose a contrast between the kings of this world and the king who made the world. Between the, the, the small kingdoms of, of nations or the, the little tiny kingdoms we try to build for ourselves and our own lives or his unending kingdom. He's forcing us to choose. Who do you want to rule your life? Is Jesus the king you want? Now, if you haven't already, turn to, to Luke 19. As I said, this is not, uh, this is not Palm Sunday. Uh, we still have 10 Sundays, including today before Easter. So there's a long time. We're going to take the next 10 weeks just to walk through these final days leading up to the cross. Just this last week in Jesus' life. 
And, and so our, our story today begins actually just outside of Jerusalem. We want to begin there, right? He's, he's on the Mount of, of Olives. Um, it's a small mountain range just east of the city. So he's looking sort of down upon the city. You can see it from there. And, and even though Jesus has, has walked really everywhere, right? In his, his, his entire life, right? His entire ministry, he's walking to all these different places, walks, walks, walks. But, but this time, he wants to make a statement because kings don't walk into their capital city. They ride. When a king returns home victorious, right? They, they need their entourage, their parade, like never waste a PR moment. This is, this is, a, big, this is a big chance for Jesus. And clearly he has a plan, right? It even seems like he's, he's arranged with some family in Bethpage to have a donkey ready for them, right? He's like, he's like you know, I worked this out. I think that's probably what's happening there. And so he sends these people. He, he's worked out transportation for himself. It's just sort of funny, right? The son of God working out his own transportation schedule. Um, and he borrows to do that a, a young, right? It says a, a, a colt, a young donkey to ride on. Which even in the 21st century, right? That feels weird, doesn't it? Why a donkey? Like, why not a horse? A stallion? Like, a war horse? Or at least, like, a chariot? Like, something like this? This is like borrowing a Corolla when you could have taken a limo, okay? Or, or, or a Lamborghini. Like, Jesus, he could have done anything. Like, yeah, I'm just going to take a little donkey, right? That's what he does. Why? It's so weird. And so picture this. Jesus and his ragtag disciples, they parade into town. And yes, those closest to him celebrate. They're soon to be disillusioned. And some of them very angry, even. But for a moment, they, they celebrate. The crowds begin to grow, and they, they sing out Psalm 118. It's recorded for us in, in Luke chapter 19, verse 37. So he, here's how the story kind of goes. It says, The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, and this is the quote from the psalm, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so some of them do recognize what's happening here. And they want Jesus as their king, right? But the, but the religious leaders, like who are, who are the, those are the VIPs, right? Those are the people in charge, right? Those are the people with their lives together there in that culture. They are everything. They are furious. <laughs> the disciples are calling him king. But Luke tells us the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, Rebuke your disciples. Kind of love that, right? They're okay with Jesus being a teacher. Like, and many of us, many of us are. Like, we, we like Jesus in there. He's like, he's a good teacher. It's fine, right? But, but the moment they start calling him king, the Pharisees are going to lose their minds, right? And, and with, with decent reason, like, teacher, look around. This is pathetic. You think you're a king? What kind of lame kingdom are you bringing? Like, shut it down, they're saying. And they do kind of make a good point. This doesn't exactly look like something that's going to overthrow the Romans, does it? I mean, Jesus, really? Like, this is your plan? But you see, actually, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, a guy by the name of Zechariah, he wrote 500 years earlier in the Old Testament, he wrote predicting a king who would enter Jerusalem just like this. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 Right, again, written like 500 years earlier, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. A humble king who brings peace. Yeah, but is that the king we want? Really? This guy? Do we want a king who's lofty or a king who's lowly? Now think about that. I mean, surely, like, think about that. Do you want a king with a show of power and strength or one who brings peace? A king who takes or a king who serves? Because you've got to think about the disappointment this would have been for the people. They were being oppressed by the Romans. Like, they wanted their freedom, right? They wanted, they wanted a king who would take Israel back, restore their freedom, their religion, their identity. But it's pretty clear at this moment. Like, okay, this is a donkey moment. Like, Jesus obviously has different plans, right? And listen, sometimes, if I'm, if I'm completely, honest, completely honest, there are times when I am disappointed in Jesus' lowliness. I'm like, just do, like, get it done, Jesus. Like, I, I look around my world, right, my life, like, and we see all these different things going on, and it's, it's, just, it's easy to get frustrated. Jesus, we need you to, to, to do, do something. Like, get to work. Get off your donkey, right, and do something about it. Like COVID, politics, justice, disunity, cancer, depression. Like you, you have your list. I have mine, right? So I can't help but a little, like be a little bit sympathetic to the Pharisees here. Like, is this the king we want? Because yes, 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 I believe he will fix it, right? But he works from a low position, a slow position. And if we are unwilling to follow a lowly king with our own patience and humility and forgiveness and peacemaking, then we've got the wrong guy. So do you want a lofty king or a lowly king? I actually think one of the best ways for us to kind of answer that question for ourselves is, is just to look quickly at how we use power. How are we using our own power? How are you using your power, because, I mean, Jesus has all power. Don't, don't mistake what he's doing here for weakness, okay? He has all the power in the world, literally, right? And yet he's acting with selflessness. He's using his power to serve. And we all have power, like young and old, no matter what situation you're in, what, what vocation you're, like all of us here in this room, we all are joining us online. We all have power, right? And so even just for example, like if, you know, if you're a parent or a grandparent, you have, an, you have immense power, over the, the little ones in your home, right? So are you known in that space as a lofty, you know, author, authoritarian? Or as a gentle nurturer? As a kind corrector? Or, or for those of you who are married, like think about the, the power dynamics between spouses, right? There is power in that relationship. And are you using your power to sacrifice for one another, to, to ensure the other's flourishing, to, to bring their good to bear? Power at work, right, with your, your customers or coworkers. Power in the public square when we're debating different ideas. Are we known for this kind of humility, gentleness, 
and respect. Church, the posture, posture we take reveals the king we've chosen. The posture we take reveals the king we've chosen. Do you want a lofty king or a lowly king? All right, that's the first thing. There's actually like three stories here. It's, all, it's one story, but it goes from like scene to scene to scene. We only heard the first one, so now you might have to follow along in your Bible with me on this. So he's entered the city on a donkey, which is crazy enough, right? The disciples have declared him king. That's what they've, they've literally said that. Psalm 18, they sang that about him. But the important people have all called him a fraud, right? They want nothing to do with him. They don't see him for who he really is, the, the long-awaited, snake-crushing, sin-forgiving, creation-restoring, long-awaited, forever king, right? They, they don't see him as that. They see him as a threat to their own power, to their own comfort, to their own small kingdoms. And so how does Jesus respond? With force? <laughs> no, with tears cries like, like think about like again this is his this is his big moment and he like enters the city on this donkey and then he goes over and he cries for a while like is this is this really who we're going to follow i mean like think about that let's look at, look at that in the text it's around the, the uh, verse 40 41 where you can follow but like this is this is wild like he weeps in the language here in the text it's not like it's not like that one nice little tear that rolls for the photo op, right? The, the language implies, like, this is ugly crying. It's audible. Like, people are over, like, people are like, settle down, Jesus. Like, this is, you're ruining, like, even the donkey is like, dude, you're ruining it, okay? Uh, this, this is a, it's a disaster. Imagine the disciples, the crowds. This is everything, and now he's just weeping. You see, 150 years earlier, a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus did much of the same thing. In fact, this is what Hanukkah is, is based on, this, this story. Judas Maccabeus, he came in. It wasn't the Romans at the time who had overtaken Israel. It was the Greeks, okay? And so he came in, and he forced them out, out of Jerusalem. He came in. He purified the temple. Like, he, he brought it to them, right? Judas was a brilliant military commander who overthrew a superior army, and when he, when he invaded Jerusalem, he came in riding on a chariot, not a donkey, with a, with a war cry, he rallied the troops, swords drawn. And they all, every one of them, they all know this story. We still know this story. It's only 150, like, they knew it. That's exactly what they wanted Jesus to do. Instead, he's crying. Jesus, there's, there's no crying in overthrowing the Romans, right? Verse 41. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. And if you keep reading, he predicts the destruction that's about to come on them. Forty years later, actually. Jesus is predicting when the Romans, they're going to get fed up, right? They're going to destroy the temple to the ground. They're going to, like, burn the city. They're going to kill countless people. Like, we have all the historical record of this. It was awful. And so, knowing that that is coming, he weeps. It's hard to picture God crying, isn't it? So, let me just ask, do you want a king who wars or a king who weeps? Who wars or who weeps? 
He weeps over their sin, their, their willful blindness, the injustice, the soon coming destruction, and his own un- impending death. He's got a long list, right? Plenty to cry over. And if we want this king to be our king, we have to be willing to weep alongside him, don't we? Where must we weep with Jesus? I mean, when's the last time you've cried with Jesus? Now, I know it's, it's unfair for me to ask that. Y'all know I'm a crier, okay? I'm sorry. I don't like it. It just happens. I feel things, and then water just, like, comes out of my face, okay? I feel really bad. I feel especially bad for those of you joining us in HD, right? It's got to be hideous when I do that. I'm not going to do it today. I promise, okay? Um, I'm going to try not to do it today. Uh, so, like, I get it. Like, I'm a crier, right? It's easy for me to say that. You might not be a crier, and I'm not suggesting that we all need literal tears here with Jesus, but there are things that break Jesus' heart that ought to break ours. I mean, the fact that he, he weeps over our pain and heartache. Think about it. He weeps with you. One of the greatest comforts in my life, those moments of deep sorrow and personal pain, is remembering that Jesus, he's referred to, like one of his nicknames is Man of Sorrows. Like he knows what it's like, and he weeps with you. Whatever it is, like all, whatever you're, like he knows, and he cries with you. He weeps over injustice and, and evil, racial inequality, the life of the unborn, human trafficking, persecution. Like the list is unending, Right? He weeps over the lost, people in your life and mine that we love, that he loves even more, who continue to reject him. He weeps over our sin, our own willful rebellion against him, the ways in which we, even as his own people, continually say to him, I think I know better things. In our unwillingness to submit to our king, we have a king who weeps. We should weep with him. Is that the king you want? Okay, so comes in a donkey. He weeps over the city. But now at least, like he's headed to the most important place, right? The most important place in Jerusalem, the most important place in Israel, right? It's the, the temple. Like, this is, this is it, people. Like, if, if you know the, the story of Scripture, and you may not, that's okay, but like Ezekiel is another prophet way back in the Old Testament, several hundred years before this. He has this vision of the glory and presence of God leaving the temple. Like, where God is like, I'm out, people. And, and now he's coming back. The presence and glory of God in the person of Jesus returning to his temple. This is a big deal. And so even the disciples, I can't help it. Like, are they thinking that? Like, okay, the donkey is weird, but it's forgivable. And we all, we all get our, our emotions get the best of us from time to time. But, but now, now the temple, right? Like he can could, he could partner with the religious leaders. They're the most powerful people in Israel in that, in that day. He can make the, the, the temple his new headquarters, Like, this is the place where he could overthrow the Romans and restore the glory of Israel. But instead, when he gets there, he just makes everything worse. Look look what he does. Verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. I mean, other gospel writers even say that he's, like, got a whip, right? He's flipping over tables. Like, it's kind of a crazy scene, isn't it? It's not the Jesus we often imagine. Yikes. Is this the king we want? The king who coddles 
or a king who confronts. A king who nods at our sin, just sort of pats us on the back, oh, you're fine, it's not that big a deal. Or a king who's willing to flip over the tables in our lives. Now listen, I, I just want to be completely honest here, I don't know exactly what's happening in this text. Like scholars and commentators are all over the place. When Jesus does this to the temple, there's so many different theories. Well, maybe he's mad about this, maybe it's this, maybe, like, we don't, we don't really know, right? Some of the, some of the theories are that the, the sellers are, are price gouging, and so they're taking advantage of the most vulnerable who are there to worship. It could be because of the religious leaders, like instead of leading the people in prayer, they're trying to line their own pockets, right, with prophets. It's probably both of those things. But here, here though, I think is the core of what Jesus is doing here. Because you see, if you understand how the city is laid out, there's actually a Roman garrison like right next to the temple. I mean, that was important because the, the Romans knew like if insurrection happens, this is where it's going to happen. The temple is everything. And so they are ready. And Jesus could have gone in there. They're the enemy. He could have driven them out. Pagans, get. But he doesn't. Instead, he goes to his own people clean house. Most likely all the chaos in the temple was probably in the, the court of the Gentiles. So it was a place where the, the Gentiles were, were allowed to be able to, to come in, right, and to actually worship the, the one true God, the God of, of Israel. That they, they were invited into that space and that they made this area of the temple a shopping mall of injustice and greed. They didn't want the Gentiles in there. They didn't want them in their family. And the Israelites, though, all the way back to the call of Abraham, they were meant to be a light to the nations, right? They, they were, all people were meant to know and experience God, right, through, through them. But they, they, they didn't want that. They'd, re, they'd rejected that. They'd lost that. They'd wanted instead to hunker down to preserve their own nation, their own culture, and so they saw outsiders as enemies to be defeated rather than people to be loved into God's family. And so Jesus confronts them. I mean, we kind of expect Jesus to go to the bad people, whoever they are, right? You've got your list, I've got mine. Like if Jesus were to come, he's going to go and he's going to go shake things up over there, right? That's not what he does. He comes here to his people. And I have to ask, what tables would Jesus flip over in our lives? And there's a variety of ways to answer that. I think it's appropriate to individually, personally, like to just take a moment. Like what in your life specifically, what would he flip over? And say no more, not if you're going to follow this king. It's okay to answer that individually, personally. He's not going to coddle us in our sin. But you, you can't keep it there. Because what Jesus is doing is not merely personal or individual, right? This, he's confronting the religious people of his day. People like us. And he's confronting the barriers that prohibit outsiders from entering in. The thing that keep the bad people out, right? And only let the good people in. The things that, that hinder our witness. So and so... What are the unbiblical things in the church right now and in our lives right now that keep outsiders out? That are just ruining our witness. In other words, if Jesus were to walk in here right now, what, what tables would he start flipping over? 
Would it be our materialism and greed? Would it be our willful blindness to injustice? Or political idolatry? Or extreme Christian nationalism? Or the last thing you posted on Facebook? The way we talk to one another? Would it it be our refusal to give up our own rights or preferences for the sake of others, simply to love our neighbor? Would it be about disunity and infighting within the church? Friends, I think one of the things we should weep over right now is that people are rejecting Jesus, not because of Jesus, but because of us. Because of perceptions of the church, perceptions of Christians, the things that too many of us have lost our way. We've forgotten our mission to love and to make disciples. That that is the core of who we are and what we are called to be about, you and me, as his people today. And we need a king who will flip over a few tables. because it's not too late for us, church. It's not too late. Like our king, we can choose a lowly position. The people around us, the people we interact, we can choose that. Like, like our king, we can weep over and weep with the hurting around us in our world. And when we fail, because we will, we can welcome this king to flip over the tables in our lives. For if we if we actually submit to this king, I mean, just think about that. What if, what if we actually live like this as, as followers of, of Jesus, as his church, as his people? What if this is what we were, were known for? I mean, the world would see it. I mean, think of the response that would be. And I mean, just like, just like they did in the, in the early church. In fact, there's this, this, this great letter that we have from the third century. So, I mean, think about it. Like, like super old, right? The church was brand new. Um, Christians had just been around for a couple hundred years at this point. And a, and a Roman noble named Diognetus, he writes this incredible distri- description of Christians, of those who follow this king. I want, I want to read what he wrote and just see how it fits with, with the church today. He writes, Christians are indistinguishable from other people, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. Basically saying that like, they're normal, they blend in, right? They're not, they're not tied to a language, a culture, a skin color, a nationality. Like that's not them. Like they blend, they just, they're everywhere, right? And yet, there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens, meaning they're, they're, they're willing to have their rights taken away. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them, meaning they don't let their unwanted children die. They share their meals, but not their wives. They treat sex very differently. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven, obedient to the laws. They yet live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all people, but all people persecute them. Church, is this what would be written about us today? 
about Christ's community. Is Jesus the king we want? Oh, I sure hope so. For only with him is there forgiveness in life. Only, only with him is there, is there meaning and hope. Redemption of the brokenness around us and within us. Only with him is there a possible, like empowerment through his spirit to, to change, to, to, to do what he has called us to, and created us to do and be. And don't forget, he doesn't just call us to this. He doesn't just do this for them. He also comes to us as gentle and lowly. He doesn't throw his power around the room when he comes to you and me. He comes with kindness. And he comes to us with tears, right? Tears for our own sin, our own brokenness, our own pain. Tears of kindness and correction. And even when he confronts, even when there are tables that he needs to flip over in your lives and mine, even then he does so for our good and for his glory. Church, this is the king we want. Amen? Let me pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, come. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, we long for that. And even in this, this time between, God, when we, we, we so deeply feel the brokenness around us and within us, and yet we still are called to this new citizenship with you, God, as our king, Lord, I, I pray that in these moments we would be known for gentleness and humility. God, for, for love, even towards those who disagree with us, even towards those who would want to destroy us. And God, if there are areas in our lives that you need to flip over, please do it. Be gentle. But show us those areas. Convict us of our sin. And help us be restored once again in our witness to a lost and dying world so that others may know you and receive you also as their king. That is our longing, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.